Um, just like to start by saying a couple of words uh, about the use of this term secular. Um, this is the second talk at Springbrook um, by Stephen Batchelor. That's for posterity, not for you. <laughs> One might get the impression, perhaps in the light of what I've been saying about rebirth and so on, that secular implies that we're only concerned with this life, we're only concerned with this existence, which arguably would be not much different from a kind of hedonism. You know, just enjoy yourself as much as you can, and if that, that means getting your, your spiritual kicks as well as your the sensual ones, then it's still all about just getting the most out of this life. But that's not the way that I'm using the term. But rather, a secular approach to the Dhamma would be one that tries to understand how the Dhamma, um, or tries to understand the Dhamma in terms of how we conceive of ourselves and the world in the light of our age. In that sense, secular how we conceive of ourselves and the world in the light of our age. So a secular Dhamma would be taking the Dhamma, which are loosely, we can loosely consider to be the teachings of the Buddha, and entering into a dialogue, into a conversation, perhaps into an argument between those teachings and the way in which we conceive of ourselves in this time and in this age. Now one of the characteristics of the way in which we conceive of ourselves um, in our times is um, the, the emphasis on uh, an historical consciousness. In other words, we relate to the Dharma, and again I went into this quite a bit yesterday so I'm not going into it now, um, we relate to it in terms of the question, how did it come about? Where did it come from? Rather than simply taking at face value what a particular tradition might say, and this is the Dharma. Be it Zen or Tibetan or Theravadin, doesn't matter. When Buddhism, when the Dharma comes into this age, then it will provoke, either from us or from scholars, Questions that perhaps previous ages have not thought to be so important, namely giving an historical sense of the teachings themselves. Historical in the sense of having a clearer understanding of what were the circumstances that um, gave rise to the Buddha in his time. But I think also when the Dharma comes into encounter with our age and we look at it through the way we conceive of ourselves in this age we also have to bring into play ideas about evolution for example um, and how we understand this universe to have come about from the big bang up until now and particularly in terms of how life evolved on the planet and how ever more complex organisms have emerged 
in the course of time. And this will then throw into question certain, certain assumptions that have maybe been central to Buddhism uh, since its inception. And again, we touched on some of these in the discussion yesterday. Uh, assumptions about where do greed and hatred and delusion come from. I think a more uh, compelling explanation for that um, lies in seeing them as, um, as forces, as impulses, as drives, as instincts that have served um, in the interest of our survival. They've been valuable. They've been useful. Otherwise, they wouldn't be here. We, in a sense, are the inheritors of the, of the past that created us. Unfortunately, some of these impulses and the ones the Buddha singles out, greed, hatred, delusion about self and so on, have, in a sense, outlived their usefulness. They've, they're past their sell-by date. But since um, biological time moves so slowly, since biological adaptation is not something that occurs overnight, but over eons, well, not eons, but let's say millennia, then we are, um, in a sense, ahead of biology in our culture. Uh, cultural um, forces have come to play, religious forces have come to play, where people have become self-conscious. In fact, the very emergence of consciousness itself, I think, is what has enabled us to become self-aware as individuals, uh, self-aware as communities, and to have then reflected on our condition and, and, and said, look, um, you know, if we continue being self-centered, greedy, hateful, fearful, this is not going to advance us, either personally or collectively, that we need to put into place certain um, uh, um, constraints, we might call this morality or ethics, thou shalt not kill. And we don't have to, we find this in Buddhism and Christianity and Judaism, these, these moral precepts that in many ways are there because we still harbour within ourselves the instinct to kill, the instinct to steal, the instinct to lie, the instinct to rape. These things are within us. And so much of culture, much of uh, morality as a sort of system of, of, of rules and precepts are in, have come about because of humans' trying to come to terms with their biological past, the vestiges that are still uh, active within us that we seek to curb and control. And uh, this, of, of course, is not just, this is throughout all religions, all religions and all cultures put in place these constraints. Now, traditional Buddhism... Um, has not seen the origin of greed, hatred and delusion in that way at all. It's not seen them as the, um, the vestiges of our evolutionary past, but has seen them as somehow uh, taints or corruptions within the continuity of mind. And they are mental events. It's quite curious in a way, at least from a modern perspective, how a tradition that has given so much importance to understanding the nature of mind, 
or consciousness, has never once suspected that consciousness might have something to do with this lump of matter in our heads, the brain. It's very difficult, I think, now to perpetuate certain views of mind or or consciousness without recognizing how um, the, our neurology, this incredibly complex organ between our ears, is, um, if not the origin of consciousness, it's certainly a very um, a crucial condition for it to occur. And we know that if you have a, a, a stroke or if you have some surgery performed on your brain, that will affect quite predictably your um, quality or your the kind of consciousness that you will then have. We can't detach the two anymore. It's very difficult. Now the other thing I think we have to emphasize is that this is the view of our age and no doubt it will be superseded. That we can only really work with what um, is um, understood and known at our time. I doubt very much that in a thousand years time we will still share the kind of scientific worldview that we have now. We will have moved on. Maybe not, we don't know. But I suspect we will. So I think all of these, um, uh, you know, all of these reflections have to be taken. In, it has to be taken into consideration that this is just where we are now. This is our time. This is our age. It's not possible for us to <clears throat> to um, to project into a future what later generations might understand. We have to work within the kind of worldview that we have. And I think this was exactly the same for the Buddha. The Buddha's worldview, the worldview of 4th century BC India, t- assumed or took for granted certain basic ideas. And um, we looked at that again yesterday the idea of rebirth, the idea of, of karma, actions which then drive something, a consciousness, a spirit, whatever, life to life. Um, And also the idea that the aim of a human life, its telos, is the um, breaking free from the cycle of birth and death. Whether that's Brahmanism or Jainism or Buddhism, that worldview is held in common. And that's why I would say that it's not intrinsic to the Buddha's teaching. It's extrinsic. It's part of the culture under which Buddhism evolved. It's certainly true that um, after the Buddha, the Buddhists were very often at the forefront of refining and developing this worldview. At the time of the Buddha, you don't have, for example, the six realms of existence. The Buddha never mentions that. that. There are suggestions that there is a Narak, a hell, suggestions that there are gods, uh, ghosts, and so on. But at the Buddha's time, this wasn't formulated into a clear-cut strata of realms, which subsequent Buddhists developed. So Buddhism then also went into a great deal of theorizing as to what it is that gets reborn. The Buddha was not interested in that. In fact, as we saw yesterday, he felt that such questions were actually missing the point, that they failed to 
really um, address the actual situation at hand. And so the Buddha's teaching very notably, and I think very centrally, starts with the question of suffering. It doesn't start with metaphysical questions. It has no room at all for anything comparable to the idea of God. So when I say that um, uh, a secular view of the Dhamma is one that emerges out of this encounter, this interaction, and part of that has to do, I think rather importantly, with an understanding of where we come from, both historically as a human culture and biologically as a human being. We're not just concerned with this existence. We're concerned with another understanding of our place within time, within our relationship to the past and also our relationship to the future. We're concerned, and I think nowadays particularly because of our environmental crises, we've become increasingly conscious of the legacy that we may leave for future generations. So a secular view is one that takes into account the lessons of the past and seeks uh, to um, behave, at least the more responsible members of our society, seek to behave in a way that will um, not deplete resources or uh, vitiate the physical structure of the world uh, so that future generations can enjoy it as we have. Now I think in that respect a, a secular view is certainly not just about being concerned with our existence here and now but rather is another perspective on how our current life is embedded in a past and is the germ or the seed of a future. And this, I think, is perhaps the, is, is, is a modern reading of what, in previous Buddhist cultures, was uh, provided with the idea of karma and rebirth. That um, rebirth, I think, if we, we could read it symbolically or metaphorically, but I don't frankly find that so terribly helpful. But nonetheless, what the vision of past lives and future lives provided was a transcendence of just doing good for ourselves right now. That it was a, it was a sense that we inhabited a world uh, that, far, that extended far, far further, much further, than our own particular selfish concerns here and now. And that, I think, is one of the, the values of that worldview. The problem now I feel, at least certainly for me, is that the way the assumptions about um, such a worldview, how it works, etc., I think are increasingly difficult for us to make much sense of. I don't find it impossible, going back to your question, Victor, that the Buddha believed in past and future lives. I don't think that's a problem, frankly. But even if he did, the objection to it would be that to believe that today gives rise to such enormous uh, philosophical and, and empirical problems that I, for one, would simply not be able to make any sense of it. I don't want to get into the arguments of this, it's too complicated. But um, 
that to me is the problem. For, I think in, our, from, in the terms of our age, the question of rebirth is really an empirical question. If there is compelling evidence that it exists, then fine. I don't have a problem with it. There are, of course, as I'm sure most of you are aware, uh, a, a small amount of research done in the University of Virginia which has collated stories of young kids who remember their past lives. That is the way to go. Um, the problem with rebirth is that it's not so much a metaphysical claim, it's actually claiming to say something about the nature of the empirical world. That a physical death, something within the organism, the mind or whatever, will continue elsewhere. And if that claim is true, then it's the sort, uh, it's not for Buddhists or philosophers to, to judge on it, but it is an empirical issue. Uh, it's a claim about the structure of the world we live in. And it should, in theory, be um, uh, uh, um, verifiable or demonstrable by um, empirical research. And that is being done. And I think the, if we are to pursue these questions, we need to do so on the basis of, of evidence-based uh, science. Unfortunately, that is happening. I personally am very sceptical about it. And I also feel that even if it were demonstrated that there is rebirth, that would actually not get us very far anyway. Because the crucial matter is not whether there is a continuity of life in some way like that, but whether that can serve as the basis for the continuity of, um, of moral acts and their effects. Just to know that there's rebirth would not give us any uh, demonstration that... Um, a person is reborn according to their moral deeds. And in fact, curiously, the, many of the instances found in Stevenson and other work um, actually don't, um, uh, um, don't conform to what a Buddhist would expect. A lot of people who, are, who remember past lives lived, had a violent death. Uh, there's a very high correlation between having remembered dying in a fight out of fear and hatred, and then sometimes the kids claim, they claim to have marks on the body that show this. But from a classical Buddhist perspective, such people were very unlikely to have, re be, have been reborn as human. We've got all sorts of problems. Another problem is that the average time difference between the death of the person in the past life and the birth of the person in the present life is four to five months. Buddhism claims that conception, um, uh, uh, that rebirth begins at conception. So evidence-based um, uh, work like this may not actually um, uh, justify or confirm Buddhist beliefs. Endlessly problematic, and I'm going to leave it there. Maybe we could have a moratorium on rebirth from this point on. <laughs> um, I'd like to start with um, a passage, uh, the, the metaphor of the snake. This is, uh, it's on page six in my version. I don't know whether your pagination corresponds to mine. It's after the raft. It's the metaphor after the raft. You'll see in the, um, this text, by the way, maybe I should just say a few words about it. 
I call it source texts for secular Buddhism. And I've quite unashamedly drawn um, materials from the Pali Canon that support, that seem to be fruitful in terms of defining a secular Buddhism. I started with the Kalama Sutta, which can't come, has come, have come as a great surprise to many of you. But then the next sequence of texts are all metaphors. Um, we're not going to have time to go through all of them. We'll touch on some of them. Um, but again, I feel that uh, some of these parables and metaphors are very likely to go back to a very early source. Uh, this is again an argument that we find in Christian a bi- 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 a biblical analysis, and recently the same points being made by Richard Gombrich, that um, the presence of parable and metaphor uh, tends in religious traditions to go back to an early source. Um, whereas when the tradition evolves and develops its doctrines and its texts, they become less and less metaphorical. Uh, if you look at the Abhidharma, or if you look at, say, Madhyamaka philosophy or Yogacara philosophy, um, the emphasis increasingly becomes on doctrinal and logical rigor, uh, trying to explain things in rational terms. Um, less and less appeal to metaphor. What is powerful about metaphor? is that it um, activates the imagination. Doctrine, as a rule, doesn't. If you read you know, Buddha Gosha, the Vishuddhimaga, for example, you will not find that it activates your imagination a great deal. It's basically a text that's saying, this is what is true, this is what the Buddha meant, and this is why. That's doctrinal Buddhism. It's the same in all schools. You periodically, get a text that suddenly metaphor reappears and uh, one example would be the Lotus Sutra that's quite full of metaphor but that's quite uncharacteristic so the snake um, metaphor works by taking something from the world of our everyday experience and then saying um, what I'm saying the Buddha for example my teaching is like this It's like a snake, it's like a raft, it's like an elephant, it's like a city. He's not describing his teaching, he's giving us an example drawn from our own ordinary experience of everyday things. We've all encountered snakes, possibly in Australia more than many other places. And he describes his teaching to a snake. And so as soon as we hear the word snake, that brings up in our imagination all of the feelings, um, our memories, our, uh, our fears, our love of snakes. Supposing a, suppose a man needed a snake and sought... Oh, the English here is terrible, by the way. I really have to rewrite it. Suppose a man needing a snake, seeking a snake, wandering in search of a snake, saw a large snake and grasped its coils or its tail. It would turn back on him and bite his hand or arm or one of his limbs. And because of that, he would come to death or deadly suffering. 
Why is that? Because of his wrong grasp of the snake. So too, here, some misguided people learn the Dhamma, but having learned the Dhamma, they do not examine the meaning of those teachings with intelligence. This is Panya, usually translated as wisdom, but actually I think intelligence is a better translation. They do not gain a reflective acceptance of those teachings. Instead, they learn the Dharma in order to criticize others and win in debates, and they do not experience the good for the sake of which they learned the Dharma. These teachings, being wrongly grasped by them, conduce to their harm and suffering for a long time. Um, this is a very powerful image. Um, and it's, it's striking in the Buddha is saying that what he's teaching can lead to your harm and suffering for a long time if you misapprehend it, if you don't correctly grasp it, if you don't get it in the right way, it's not just, well, then you've missed the point, but actually it can have a negative effect. And again, the criterion that he uses is very similar to the criteria we found in the Kalama Sutta. That um, the, the value of the teaching is not to give you some kind of, uh, uh, you know, some position, some theoretical view, some philosophical uh, uh, strength that you can then, as it were, augment your importance in your world and refute others in debate and become, as it were, a sort of rhetorician. And it's all about argument and being right as opposed to being wrong. But rather, it's about, well, he doesn't actually state it in so many words, but again, it has to do with does this teaching conduce to your own well-being, your happiness, your fulfillment as a person. That's what matters. And again, I'm aware when I read this passage, and this passage is somehow is sometimes thrown back at me with the assumption that I'm misgrasping the Dharma. And maybe that's true. It would be arrogant to say that um, yeah, I've got it right, those guys have got it wrong. But of course, in our rather... Um, intellectual and often quite heated world of uh, views and opinions it's very it's very very uh, tempting or very very natural in a way to assume that my view of this is better than your view and one must always be careful about that the Buddha is not interested in providing a dogmatic view that can be used to refute the views of others of course, we exchange ideas, we debate, we argue, that's just human. But we must be careful not to identify these teachings with a particular philosophical or religious position. They are primarily intended as a form of cure, of healing, um, of transforming our lives in ways that we can flourish in all aspects of our existence, not just in our, in our views, in our opinions. If we look at the Eightfold Path, we find, of course, that it does begin with views, samaditi, right views, as it's usually translated. 
But we also find that the Buddha uses this word views in a very um, ambiguous way. He also has an expression, diti gata, which literally means a person who has gone to views. But what that means is someone who is opinionated. Uh, There's a great danger sometimes that Buddhists uh, suggest that the aim is to get rid of views altogether. Um, That, I think, is clearly not the case. Uh, The question is to achieve what the Buddha calls samaditi. He uses the word diti views in a very positive sense. First step of the Eightfold Path. So we have to differentiate between what is a samaditi, which I would translate rather than a right view, which unfortunately the word right already raises the spectre of right versus wrong, which is how it's translated. The word sama doesn't actually mean right. Sama means something like whole or complete. And um, one could perhaps translate it as integral, which does in fact mean that. An integer is a whole number. Integral means complete, whole, integrated. Um, I prefer to think of it like that. Um, But I think we could also translate it as appropriate view. In other words, the view that's appropriate to the situation rather than a view that claims rightness irrespective of all circumstance. And I think Martine might have mentioned, did she talk about right view last night? Oh, she probably will. But um, again, when you look in the Pali Canon, the Buddha doesn't specify any particular view as right view. Sometimes it's the Four Noble Truths, sometimes it's understanding how, how good deeds give right to good results and so on. Um, sometimes it has to do with dependent origination. Um, he's, he, right view is, de, is defined in many, many ways, which implies, I think, the fact that it's not about being right, but it's about one's sense or one's view, one's vision of the situation uh, being appropriate to the occasion. <coughs> one of my favorite uh, Zen quotes is from Yunmen, or Umon in Japanese. And Yunmen was a 9th century uh, Chan master in China. And he was once asked, what is the highest teaching of the Buddhas and the patriarchs. And he said, an appropriate statement. Which is, I think, very close to what the Buddha was doing. An appropriate statement. In other words, what is the highest teaching is not some doctrine or some philosophical belief or some form of meditation practice that stands at the head of a great hierarchy of slightly lesser views. What is the right, quote-unquote, view is the one that's appropriate to the situation at hand. So the Buddha compares his teaching to a snake. In other words, there's something rather dangerous in this teaching, in a lot of these ideas. Um, If we misapprehend them, if we turn them into dogmas, then they're going to swing back and bite us. They're going to actually re... uh, they're going to strengthen the very thing that they were set out to cure. Of course, some of us, in fact, I was not aware really that this metaphor was in the Pali Canon until fairly recently. I was familiar with it from the writings of Nagarjuna, 
The Gardener says uh, very famously that, that emptiness is like a snake. If you misapprehend emptiness, it will, as it were, again, uh, have the opposite effect for the, compared to the one it was set out to have. Emptiness is meant to liberate the mind, uh, lead to insight, to growth, transformation. But if you make it into a doctrine, if you make it into a view, then it actually serves to actually reinforce the problem that it was meant to heal. But for Nagarjuna, of course, emptiness equals dependent origination, emptiness equals nibbana, emptiness equals the middle way. Emptiness becomes a kind of a, a code word for the primary principles that the Buddha identifies with the Dhamma. We'll come back to that. So again, we need to be careful. And we need to be as much concerned with the way in which we apprehend these teachings um, as with the teachings themselves. We need to be very alert to how we could we can misconstrue these things, not by necessarily getting it, you know, the, the information wrong, but by holding them in a way that serves primarily our own self-interest, perhaps vis-à-vis others, rather than seeing them as tools uh, to uh, work a certain effect. Now, what I want to... Um, uh, consider now and I think maybe every day I'm going to try and introduce one of these metaphors um, I want to go back to um, a question that I think might help us to uh, understand the approach I'm taking and that is that what I've become interested in doing is to differentiate those teachings of the Buddha that cannot be derived from the Indian culture of his time. As I mentioned yesterday, you find in the canon passages um, where the Buddha, in a sense, is not really differentiating himself from perhaps any teacher, a Jain or a Brahmin, uh, particularly concerning you know, the quality of one's actions now will determine the, core, the effect of your existence after death. Uh, the basic moral template. Uh, very often the Buddha uses that. But precisely because it can be derived from the culture that was already in place, we can put it aside respectfully, in brackets, to one side. Um, this is not something that is unique and distinctive to what the Buddha was saying. And I find that this method has been quite fruitful, actually. Um, it allows us to put, put aside quite a lot of the material we find in the early canon. And what is left over will stand out more clearly as what is original and distinctive in the Buddha's teaching. Now, I've written on the board uh, four uh, points that I don't think you can derive from the pre-existing culture. Uh, and I'm going to 
basically spend much of the next, uh, the, our remaining time together, uh, going, looking quite closely at these particular points. But I probably won't go much into my uh, um, I mean, I've distinguished them also in terms of their function within the teaching. Um, the first one is the principle of the Dharma, which is conditioned arising, or paticca samupada, dependent origination, a conditionality, however we translate it. It's difficult to find the right word in English. Contingency. That's the principle. And you do not find that principle articulated in, as far as we're aware, the pre-existing culture of India. Then the Buddha describes a process, and that process is embodied in the teaching on the Four Noble Truths, the first sermon. Then there is a practice, and this is the practice of mindful awareness, which again you don't find in the early, in the Brahmanic or the Upanishadic tradition. Uh, what is really extraordinary is how the Buddha, for the first time, as far as we can tell, presents as the focus of meditative awareness the phenomenal world, the world of conditions of change, of suffering, the specificity of things, rather than consider meditation or spiritual contemplation as a kind of inward-looking um, search or inquiry into the nature of the mind or the soul or the spirit, a kind of introspective kind of meditation. Now, of course, later forms of Buddhism reintroduced these things. But what is striking about the early canon is how the Buddha encourages us to pay attention to our breath, our bodies, our feelings, the way we walk, the way we hold our bowl, highly specific details of the phenomenal world. And fourthly, uh, the, 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 the idea of where authority lies, or power, uh, the Buddha again encourages quite explicitly um, a path that leads to self-reliance and autonomy, rather than um, deferring endlessly to the authority of a of a guru, uh, the authority of some sacred text. Instead, he is uh, presenting a practice that leads to um, increasing uh, self-reliance, independence and autonomy. So let's start by looking at the principle of... Uh, Conditioned arising, and this comes under the heading in my text of conditioned arising. It's page 20 in mine. Mara, not self, after that. There we go. Oh, this page 20 in Victor's. It should be in Is it true? Yes. Someone, someone wrote to me once saying, My pagination doesn't work. I, I ordered them. Oh. And I think that I sent them out as a PDF. Yeah. Oh, thank you, Victor. Gosh, you're a saint. <laughs> you are freed lots of minds from lots of confusion. In there. <laughs> yes. 
Okay, um, so let's just go through some, some, just two or three of these passages here. A conditioned arising. Okay, I think for me a very central text here is in Marjama 28. Um, this is actually in the mouth of Sariputta rather than the Buddha, although Sariputta claims it's something the Buddha said. But unfortunately, we don't actually find this passage in the Buddha's mouth. One who sees conditioned arising sees the Dhamma. One who sees the Dhamma sees conditioned arising. This to me is a very, very central point. There's an an exact equivalence between the Dhamma and conditioned arising. Um, There's a very fascinating resonance with this in the Sanyutta Nikaya 3.120, which is the next uh, section. Why do you want to see this foul body, Vakali, the Buddha says? One who sees the Dhamma sees me. One who sees me sees the Dhamma. So there's an identification of the Buddha, the Dhamma, and conditioned arising. Now this, of course, is very much the tradition in which I was trained in the Gelugpa school of Tibetan Buddhism. This is, uh, this is um, I think, in fact, the teachings of Tsongkhapa, uh, which go, come through Shantideva, Chandrakirti, Nagarjuna, um, I've remained very, very true to this principle. And uh, so in that regard, you see, my, 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 my development in Buddhism philosophically has actually not moved one millimeter from Tsongkhapa. So in case you think that I'm a, I'm a Pali canon fundamentalist, that's not true. And I mentioned this before, I think the later traditions in many ways um, develop these core, core ideas of the Buddha in, in very revealing ways. But we also find other elements which seem to diverge and get caught up in other philosophical movements in India or China or Tibet or wherever. So conditioned arising um, is equivalent to the Dhamma. And I would make that a kind of a, a, a foundational axiom of my understanding of the, of, of, of the Buddha's teaching. So if someone comes along and says, but isn't the aim of the practice to experience the unconditioned? which people do. In fact, I was asked that question only the other night. I would go back to this as my starting point and then thereby seek to, in, to interpret that passage, which you do find one or two passages where the Buddha seems to be speaking of the unconditioned. We might come back to that. In fact, in my texts, um, there is a section on the unconditioned. If you look at that, you'll see... Um, get a sense of where I am on that one. Um, we can look at that in the discussion if you wish. Okay, so what's, what is condition arising? Having said, this is what the Dharma is. Well, I think one way we might understand conditioned arising in um, contemporary idiom is simply um, with the expression life. Uh, I think the way we often use the word life or living processes is very much a way of um, understanding how things emerge out of conditions. They grow, they survive, they decline, they age, they die. 
something else is then born. Um, we're talking of living processes. And again, I think it's interesting that the Buddha uses metaphors of living things to describe the Dhamma, e.g. the snake. There's another metaphor where he compares the Dhamma to an elephant. In other words, a living being, an, an organic, breathing, blood-pulsing creature. There's something very much about life here. And this is again an emphasis that is not always so apparent. We find it again when the Buddha is presented as the polar opposite of Mara, that means death. Mara, the devil, the demonic, is that which kills. Buddha, by implication, is that which gives life. So the principle of conditioned arising, I think, is a, a recognition and an affirmation that this is a practice that's concerned with learning how to live, learning how to flourish. The Eightfold Path, for me, is about the way in which a person can come to flourish in all aspects of their existence. The way they see, think, communicate, embody, work, etc., etc. So what is this condition arising? In the Buddha's own words, a very famous passage in Majjhima, 79, let be the past, Udayin, let be the future, I shall teach you the Dhamma. When this exists, that comes to be. With the arising of this, that arises. But when this does not exist, that does not come to be. And with the cessation of this, that ceases. I mean, this is clearly... Um, what we would nowadays call simply the principle of, of causality. If certain conditions uh, are present, then that will likely give rise to certain effects. If those conditions are not present, then those effects won't arise. Now again, it sounds very simple. In fact, we might even think of it as being rather simplistic. We might say, well, that's obvious, isn't it? But what the Buddha's, I think, getting at is that although intellectually it might be obvious, we do not really, we haven't internalized that insight in a way that it makes a radical difference in our own lives. You see, we have, again, we have to be careful here. The Buddha is not claiming in this statement to be giving us some precise description of the nature of reality. It's not an ontological statement. Do you know what ontological means? It means to do with what is. Ontos in Greek means to be. Ontological is basically saying, this is the way things are. This is the way things exist. Unfortunately, this, the ontological um, uh, assumptions often filter into translation. Like one very commonly translated phrase in the Pali Canon is, and you see things as they really are. Keep hearing this. It's yata bhutan. But bhutan doesn't mean to be. Um, it's not that there are plenty of words in Pali for exist, sat, for example. And, yet, and you might think that when you read in English, um, uh, and, the, and the arhat or the meditator sees things as they really are, they're actually seeing the nature of reality. When you look at the Pali term, yata bhutan, 
The word to be, to exist, is just not there. Instead, Bhutan means to, to arise. It means to happen. It means to come about. What it means is the person sees things as they come about. Sees how things arise. How things happen. Not what they are. You might argue that that's a rather semantic point. I don't think it is. I think it's rather a crucial point because the Buddha is not trying to describe the nature of reality. And this passage admittedly could be taken in that way. But he's basically giving us a principle on which we can then act. In other words, the whole of Buddhist practice is about creating the conditions in our lives that will give rise to well-being, to insight, to compassion, to values. And at the same time, to not give rise to conditions that cause confusion, greed, hatred, pain. It's pragmatic. This is not a description, it's a prescription. We could think of this as a kind of secular Buddhist slogan. The Dharma is not descriptive, it is prescriptive. In other words, it's not telling us what is, it's telling us what to do. And this is a theme that will come back again and again. I think it's extremely important. I think most Buddhist traditions uh, reflect this. I mean, with the great emphasis on practice, for example. It's basically saying what matters is, how, is your practice, not your beliefs. But this often becomes rather confused and blurred. But it, I think when we look at conditioned arising, we must try to get it out of our heads that this is a description of how the world is. It might be, who knows? But that's not the point the Buddha is trying to make. And this actually might be a good example of misapprehending the snake. We think of it as a description of reality rather than as an instruction to do something. And I think we can apply that principle, that's why I call it a principle, to everything within the te teaching. Everything. Uh, not just with, in this particular regard. And I think we have to be careful when, when we use terms like Buddhist philosophy, um, which we often nowadays think of as a kind of a, a, an attempt to give a rationally coherent account of how things are, but rather to think of philosophy as it would have been thought of by Socrates, by the Hellenic philosophers, even Aristotle as really about um, uh, something to do, a practice, a discipline, an exercise, that will actually make a difference in the quality of our life. And finally, let's just look at this passage here. Uh, this is from Digo Nikaya 15. Uh, this conditioned arising is profound and appears profound, um, the Buddha is actually responding to, um, to Ananda. I should have kept the, the, the preceding quote. Because um, Ananda seems to say something like, um, I can't remember, remember now, but something the, the opposite of that. He says it's simple and easy to understand. Okay, there you go. Exactly, that, that's right. This condition rising is simple and easy to understand. Now that's the impression you might get from when this is, that arises, right? When that is not, that does not arise. It's like, duh, yeah, right, if we have an egg, get chicken, don't have an egg, don't get chicken. Okay, got that. What's the next teaching? 
Yeah, good, I'm glad you remember that. And the Buddha says, not at all, mate. This condition arising is profound, and it appears profound. It is through not understanding, not penetrating this Dhamma, that people have become like tangled balls of string. Wonderful image. Covered with a blight, a disease. Tangled like coarse grass, which sounds like a bit of a repetition of the first one. Unable to pass beyond states of woe, ill destiny, ruin and repetition. So, this I think, again, this passage really does force us to reflect on, well, in what way is it profound? And in what way have I, by not understanding this, become like a tangled ball of string? Again, I don't think this has anything to do with uh, some intellectually correct or incorrect grasp of a particular idea. But what the Buddha seems to be pointing to is, 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 is way below the level of our conceptual life, our intellectual understanding of Buddhism, let's say. There lies uh, a whole complex of intuitions, of assumptions of attachments, of views, that, in a sense, tangle us into a knot. A deep kind of inner sort of turmoil and constriction and confusion. I mean, this metaphor becomes quite explicit also in the, in the Vajrayana, where, where, where the, 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 uh, the chakra are understood to be like knots in the, in, in the, in, in the nadis. In, in the sort of new age version of the chakras, they're kind of groovy and hip and cool and sort of related, having good sex or something. But the way uh, they're understood in Vajrayana Buddhism is these are actually the knots within our kind of subtle body. And um, I think it's a powerful metaphor. And it also points to the fact that this knottedness is not just an intellectual confusion. It's a confusion that actually is embedded in our in, in our physiology at some level we're kind of knotted in our and you feel this sometimes you know, if you're feeling really anxious or as we say uptight you actually feel in your throat or in your heart or in your tummy you feel a kind of a tightness a kind of a something very uncomfortable a knot so what the Buddha is talking about is that uh, even if we have a totally if, if we're a, a, a very learned Buddhist scholar who understands all the suttas and the discourses and so on and so forth we may not have penetrated uh, this. Uh, the, we may not actually have penetrated into the Dharma at all but we're still just as knotted as uptight as, as kind of re- stuck as anyone else so again the the condition arising and the understanding of it has to do with uh, putting into effect uh, disciplines, in particular, of course, meditation, but also ethical contemplations uh, and many other considerations over time. There's no quick fix solution offered here, I'm afraid. But this is something we're going to have to be working with probably for the rest of our lives. Um, and what it's working at is undoing or disentangling and loosening and liberating these uh, constrictive confusions that are uh, so deeply embedded they almost feel physical. 
Uh, and again, I think this is one of the reasons. I, th- I think practices like yoga and tai chi are actually good because they do, in a sense, make us much more conscious of some of these, the, these knots of energy. Not that I practice yoga, I'm afraid. Um, <laughs> I should, I know, but I don't. But I think these disciplines are useful. Um, but basically, they in themselves are not going to really get to the root of the issue unless we can really... Uh, transform our deepest understanding of, of who we are, of what we are. And this, I feel, does require a degree of inner stability and stillness and calm, which we call shamatha, samatha, and then, of course, vipassana, this deep looking, this deep awareness, this insight, that, again, is not at all intellectual, but is... Um, the cultivation of a kind of deeply felt, intuitive sense of the conditional nature of our lives, the impermanent nature of our lives, and the dukkha nature of our lives. In dukkha, and going back to the point you, we haven't yet got on to, I, I, I still think is a pro, to think of dukkha as being caused by craving, although that is of course true in many, many instances. The real cause of dukkha is anicca and Uh, Uh, we suffer because the world is never staying the same we suffer because conditions occur over which we have no control dukkha is built into the whole idea of a conditional impermanent and impersonal world it's a feature of our existence of anyone's existence Okay, we'll stop there tomorrow we're going to I'll tell you the passage we'll start with tomorrow and that is on page 15, or actually it starts at the bottom of, yeah, page 15, top of page 15. I, I consider this dharma I have reached is deep, etc. From the Arya Pariyasana Sutra, Majjhima 26. Thank you. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.